Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad. This podcast will soon be known as Product Mastery Now. While the name is changing, the purpose is the same, which is helping product leaders and managers become product masters, gaining practical knowledge, influence, and confidence so you'll create products that your customers love. The future of work is changing for many of us. We saw some changes accelerate as a result of the pandemic, and others have already been in motion. The changes will impact product managers and innovators as well. Our guest, Matt Coatney, has studied the future of work as it is also related to his interests in the future of artificial intelligence, automation, and other applications of technology. Matt has 25 years of experience bringing advanced technology products to market in a variety of industries and for some of the largest global organizations, including Microsoft, IBM, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Pfizer, Deloitte, and HP. Use this discussion to help you consider how your work will change in the near future, and then you can better prepare for those changes and still accelerate your career through them. And remember, if you hear anything you want to go back to, we take detailed notes for you. You'll find those detailed notes at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 330. You'll also find a one-page action guide there to help you put the insights from Matt into action right now. Now, let's talk with Matt. Matt, thank you so much for joining The Everyday Innovators. Thanks, Chad. It's, gr- it's great to be here. I really appreciate you having me on. It's delightful to talk. We worked together a few years ago, and it's uh, nice to get back together for an interview about something that you're up to now. Absolutely. It's great to see you again. And uh, yeah, excited to cover this. We've had a few things going on. We have had a few things going on. Our time together could be talked about in terms of a knowledge management system. And the key lesson I learned, you you were the lead developer for this thing and exceptionally well-respected. And I had spent part of my graduate time investigating knowledge management systems. And in general, they're, they're not very well, their success rate is not as high as we would like for them to be. And part of that is because they change people's behavior. And the brilliant thing about this system that you had uh, put together with us was that it intercepted people's workflow in a transparent way, right? It, it just made, it worked automatically in a sense for them and brought information to their attention. And it was just a, a brilliant approach. You couldn't have said it better. I've, it is one of probably a dozen decision support systems, sort of AI-enabled support systems that I've built over the years. And that was always the key when we got it right. And we were able to sort of insert into the slipstream of, of someone's day without interrupting or requiring them to learn something new. That was when we met success and when we tried something that went outside of that. The further we went outside of their daily workflow, even if it benefited them, the harder it was to build adoption. Mm-hmm. So we we really worked, to your point, to build user experiences that were as integrated as possible. And it made it actually a lot harder. It takes a lot more work and a lot more thought. And often you have to bend the technology a bit to make it work, but it, it's worth it. It pays off. Um, yeah, it kind of made it transparent and it, it benefited the user's work in a significant way. And we are talking about work. We got uh, connected again over a book that you've been writing in your uh, uh, spare time that you don't have much of called Human Cloud. And one aspect of this is about technology and work and future paradigm shifts. But first, you, you, you address what is kind of broken about work. So I thought we would start there. What have you been seeing in terms of what is broken about work? 
First off, this was a an exceedingly fun book to write because the my co-author, who is also Matt, a very common name, he's about 20 years younger, maybe 15 years younger than me. So different generation has a very different view about work and, and a little bit jaded at times, but understandable. So we, we talk a bit in the book about what we have seen, and I've seen this in my own career, is as technology has evolved and made the way that we do work easier, it has, and this is no surprise, it's no brilliant observation, right? It has disrupted many industries. It, it makes the friction, we talk about the friction of doing work, that transactional cost, gets lower. And what that's done is it's changed all of these different industries. But more importantly, it's changing the way that we work. It's changing work itself. And, and when we talk about what's broken, it's, it's not that, you know, it's not that we're fighting against the establishment and that's everything is wrong and they're crooked and greedy. And it's no, no, we're putting all that aside. And we're just saying the way work is happening right now, if you think about a traditional large corporation is it's not set up the structure, the organization, the culture, the systems aren't set up to accommodate a world where technology is changing very quickly and tools are being brought in that are fundamentally shifting how we do something. And corporations are just having a hard time keeping up. That is coupled, obviously, with, I think, as that tension has risen, we have seen in in industry and in the economy, there is this growing gap between management and employees. There is, you know, all time low engagement, job loyalty is certainly not what it used to be. And so we're just seeing this sort of rift between management and employees that is growing. It's generating a wage gap and all of these other things. But that's really a symptom of just the fact that the underlying systems need to be relooked at and and really modernized for the world we're living in for the 21st century. I've had some conversations lately with, with people, and uh, these have mostly been people that are in their 20s, right, 20 to 30, and they love their job, right? The, they, they love the work they get to do, and they absolutely despise the environment to the point that a, a couple of people are, have, are leaving the work that they love because they, they can't stand the environment. Yes. And, and I think, think that's part of the tension that you're addressing here a little bit. That's right. And, and it's interesting, too, because Matt and I have had that that conversation, right? We had a lot of, we, we talked a lot about this as we were writing the book and, and what I've seen, right? And I'm a, I'm a corporate individual. I'm a, I'm a technology executive. I, I lead large teams. I've had a good fortune of generally speaking, working in pretty good companies. I, I've, I've, ha- I've been fortunate, but I know that not everybody is in that situation. And so this isn't a blanket statement about all companies. It's more about the trends that we're seeing in the underlying. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's what what the shift that we're seeing, right? And we talk a lot about freelance and gig type of work is the project work that people do, the value that they drive through building a product, launching, you know, driving a project, et cetera. The, the work that they might do, whether it's in a in a two-week sprint for a very targeted need, or it's a year long project that they're rolling out a new product. They love that part of it. It's, but it's the rest of the organization that is not necessarily plumbed to work in a, in a project based mindset. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's what we're finding, right? Companies are really good at doing certain things. They may not be as good at doing these other tasks and, and project based work is probably the most notable one of those. 
Yeah, it's not surprising to us because our entire lives revolve around projects, right? From simply making dinner, going to the grocery store. Everything we do can be defined in terms of a kind of a fixed time with some objectives at the end. And yet, our organizations still struggle with getting a group of people together to achieve those objectives together and projects you know, they're full of tensions at some, there are great projects. I don't want to overstate this, but it's challenging. It is. It is. And I've seen that throughout my career in a number of different industries. Uh, it's not unique to, you're not alone. If you're experiencing that in your own company, your own industry, you are not alone. Okay. So the title again of the book is called Human Cloud. Let's get that concept on the table. What is the human cloud? It, it actually, man, it, it manifested itself over time. We were looking to encapsulate this new world of work and what was different about it. And we, we talked a lot about the two main themes in the book. We talk about the freelance economy and the shift to project-based work. And then we talk about artificial intelligence and the way that technology is, is creeping into every part of our life, both professional and personal, and what that does to the way we work. And so what we settled on was we were sort of toying around with concepts. And, and when you think about cloud, right, you think about cloud computing, you might think about Amazon or Microsoft and sort of there's, there's all of these resources up in the ether sphere. So cloud where people are going to accomplish work with computers. Well, we said that's really what we're talking about with this future of work. We are tapping into this digital cloud of resources and that's not just people resources anymore. It's also, uh, digital or machine resources. It's, it's computational power. It's artificial intelligence. And so we have this, this visualization of the book of a, of a giant cloud, sort of a, a global cloud with both people and devices that are all connected to accomplish an end. So that's really, that's, that's where that came from. It's all, it's all about how you tap into the power of individuals and algorithms to do outsized work. Okay. I, I'm curious. So how long ago was this? At least a decade. I, I ran into Amazon Turk, right? Which was this yes, the kind mechanical of way, Turk. Yeah, mechanical Turk. And yeah. kind of a way, and it was like one of the first ones I came across, you know, in the space of thinking of, well, I need resources. And there, there's, there's this cloud of human resources that will do mechanical tasks sort of things for me. That's right. That's right. Sounds like the human cloud is kind of this combination, right? What's the technology, the platforms, the SaaS-driven environments, along with the human resources to get things done? That's right. That's exactly right. And and uh, if you're familiar, if your listeners are familiar with sites like Upwork um, or Fiverr, uh, there's all these different kinds of top tall. There's all these sites out there where you can go and source talent. And the difference in what we've seen, Chad, is that the what used to be possible, and this is true for both freelance and for AI, what used to be possible before was relatively rudimentary. It may have been low value, sort of transactional type of work. The shift is we're seeing really top-notch professionals choose a life of freelance. And you can get a, you know, an executive, a business professional, a graphic designer, a, a top, top-notch top developer, any kind of resource, even accounting there's all sorts of different capabilities out there now that probably didn't exist or didn't exist to the extent they do now 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. And I think another factor maybe in the shift is just the comfortableness with that, right? That that many of us are getting more used to finding expert resources to help us accomplish a task that we might not have thought about a decade ago. 
That's correct. We've also seen, right, that this is not, the concept itself is not new. If you think back to the days of, you know, you could hire a contractor as, as let's say, a marketing company, you can hire a contractor to do graphic design. But those kind of interactions, they were expensive to bring someone on. Um, you might have them for a six-month project or something like that. But it was it was difficult to go through. You didn't know where to source. You had to rely on local networking professionals and things like that to, to find them. Technology has lowered that bar considerably in terms of the, the barrier to entry. Mm-hmm. And it's so much easier, quicker, uh, et cetera, to find someone. So we're used to doing that in, in our professional lives, certainly. What the, the opportunity is, we're able to do that so much more quickly and in such a different variety and globally now that everything has been digitized. We'll hear more insights from Matt in just a moment. I want to comment on something that I don't expect to be changing for product managers anytime soon, and that's the need to improve our performance and our performance of our product teams. One reason is because timelines are decreasing as competitors respond more quickly. That is why I created the Rapid Product Mastery Experience, the RPM Experience. This is a nine-week journey, meeting virtually for 75 minutes a week. I take groups of product managers and organizations on this journey, building a broad foundation of product management knowledge, getting everyone on the same page, while importantly, improving their collaboration and renewing a focus on the customer. Product managers feel empowered and more confident about their work and how they create value for customers and their organization. Many organizations have benefited from the RPM experience, and you'll find them listed at theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM. Also, the RPM experience just got better. I've updated 100% of the experience. Now is the perfect time to find out if the all-new RPM experience can help you and your team. Check it out at theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM. Now let's talk to understand if it will help you also. Now, more with Matt. So we're going to get to the, you know, the, the punchline, so to speak, for you know, what does this all mean for product managers in our work, maybe using resources and how we better position ourselves too. But, but there's a key kind of role that you define in the book called change maker. And the change makers are going to be impactful here in the future of work. Tell us about what a change maker is. One, one thing to, that we were very mindful of when we were writing this book, we tried to be balanced because... There is a, a utopian version of this where everyone is living a nirvana life and they're working on the beach for four hours and making millions of dollars. But then there's the dystopian version of that where everybody becomes a, you know, a cog in a very corporate kind of machine where, you know, taking sort of the Uber or their door dashes to the, the worst extremes. We do find it somewhere in the middle. And, and that's where the change maker concept comes in because we implore people that this change is happening. It's what, how you react to it that matters. So the, the change maker is, is effectively it's an entrepreneur or an entrepreneur. Take, pick your definition, but it's someone that is leveraging the resources at their disposal to create value. And that is a race to the top, meaning the more that you can leverage resources the more value you can create. And it's this virtuous cycle. So the change maker really isn't, it's your own personal entrepreneur. You're growing yourself, you're growing your business, your role in a company, whatever that might be, but you're taking charge of that. And your sole focus is driving value. How do you drive more value to whatever that means to you? Mm-hmm. And it, it sounds, a, it's a lot of just career advice that I've given people through the years, crystallize into a bit of a concept, own your own destiny, find how you add value continue that flywheel, like all of that good, you know, self-helpy kind of stuff. It's true. It's trite, but true. 
I think we both have, you know, since I've known you, both approached work in kind of a similar manner that we think of ourselves in, in some aspect as owners of the, the work, right? We're, we're not just contributors to the organization, but we think in terms of, well, if we really are making the decisions, how would we make those decisions? And it, it changes our perspective if you think of yourself as a owner in this, right? Yes. And even down to the point of like, at least I know where my mind often goes is how does my work contribute to covering my salary and also producing revenue for the organization to keep this thing going as if it was my organization, I would care about that, right? Yeah, that, that line of sight is critical. It's a little, it can be scary, right? It's, it's empowering, but it's also accountability. And those are two sides of that same coin. But for those and that, and when we talk about it, it it's people that, that want to grab that and own it and run with it. It's, it's, but you can become one, right? It's not something you're born with. It's more of an attitude and an approach to your point. And if you start seeing those, that line of sight to the value you're creating and, and to your point, the return on investment that the a company's making in you, then you start looking at things very differently. And I've had a, one of the great things with the book is we interview so close to two dozen uh, different individuals, both on the freelance and the technology side. And in talking with the, the freelancers, the ones that have been doing it for five, seven years, that is how they viewed themselves. They were operating as a business. They were thinking about what is it that I do that adds more value? What are the things that I am doing today that aren't adding value and I can subtract? And they were constantly just like it was part of their thought processes of how to, how to operate, right? They were running a business of one. And uh, it was really neat just to see often young people but had gotten those kind of dog years of experience like you do at a startup or in a consulting world. You just, you just on a project, on a project, on a project. And the growth that they've seen has been tremendous. Mm-hmm. Now, now, my hypothesis is because I've been out of the corporate world long enough to not know, right? So I, I have the opportunity to interact with companies often, but I often see, see teams, you know, at, at their, at their best in some aspects is that part of the, part of this tension part part of the conversations that I've had about I love the work but I hate the environment has something mm-hmm. to do with this aspect perhaps of the employees seeing how things can be better and wanting to kind of you know take some ownership of that and inside an organizational structure that doesn't really know what to do with that right um, doesn't know how to provide that flexibility perhaps and we then we see just tensions and dissatisfaction. That's, that's right. And, and I think a lot of that comes from, and I, I do a lot of work in that and sort of more evolved leadership space. So what, what are things, what are ways to lead teams in the future that aren't sort of the tried and true ways of the 20th century, right? The 20th century corporate environment was a very military structured environment. And it, in some ways it had to be, it, it worked. It was what produced results, but it was very hierarchical command and control. And that, removes, again, the empowering of individuals in a large part, but also takes away that accountability. And as the world has moved more quickly, companies have had to be more agile. And they're still using those kind of structures from 20, 30, 50 years ago. And so the companies that I have seen, to your point, Chad, that are are working better, it's beginning to look a bit more like or organized pods. One model that I've seen work really well and, and actually implemented in a startup was everybody is assigned to a, a project or a set of projects that they're working on. And when those projects wrap up, they get reassigned and work maybe sometimes with the same team, sometimes with a different team. But the the pod was effectively independent. They were given a mission they were given constraints for sure. Can't be running amok, so they have to 
live within the security compliance world and they have a budget and everything else. But other than that, it's like, go, go create value. And the corporate structure became more like a, like a portfolio. They were managing these set of products and projects that were going on and putting more bets on the ones that were showing value and paying out and perhaps reassigning individuals for those that weren't. And, and that is, you know, that is a, when it's done right, I think that's a more effective model for, for that type of, for the type of work you and I are in, right? Mm-hmm. For, for knowledge and for technology and where your, where your outcome is, is dependent on either building something or introducing something into the world. Yeah. I've had the pleasure recently of helping a, a university in Canada create a, one of their specializations for their MBA program for entrepreneurs. And the, the final course in that specialty that I got to design embraces that concept that you just talked about. So this is really good. Good. It's comforting that uh, we're, we're on the right track. <laughs> That, that it's yeah. it's challenging to know bets are going to work out, right? And the notion of putting all your eggs in one place is foolish. And approaching it as a portfolio, which is the, kind of the heart of this course, and having small teams work on projects that have some promise. And over time, you're figuring out which ones have the most promise and you shift resources. So I, I like the pod structure. There is a counterbalance to that. And I, I, I'm old enough and hopefully gotten a little bit wiser to know that it's it's not as stark black and white. There is a great, I think it's Reed Hoffman from, from LinkedIn, and I think he got it from another uh, CEO somewhere, but he talks about there's there are two types of roles in an organization, and sort of traditional management, traditional roles are very much structural. So if you can think of something like finance or HR or or operations, if you're if you're running data centers and things like that, they're run in a, they, they need, they need rules and guidance and structure and they run well. And people in those roles like that structure and certainty. And there's nothing wrong with that. What often happens, and I found this early in my career, when you stick someone who is entrepreneurial in that environment, they rankle at it for obvious reasons. But the reverse is true. So he, he talks about these as tours of duty. So, and I, I loved that analogy because that's how I think of it too. I sort of, you get dropped into an, an organization, you're given a mission, you have, let's say eight, you sign up for 18 months or two years or however long, and you sort of, you, you do that, you knock it out, you, you excel, you show your value. And then, and then you go back to your, your boss or your commander and say, all right, that was great. Uh, it's time for me to re-up. What do you got next? And so it's that, it's that, it's that mindset of project-based work, but almost a totally different entrepreneurial type of mindset. And there are people that are well cut out for that. If you put someone that likes certainty, that's terrifying and that's okay too, right? So it's that give and take. And I, that has been for me, what I've seen the shift in, in corporate world, certainly since in my lifetime and in, in work is we're shifting more and more toward that type of tour of duty project type work and that infrastructure, this, the security, that base still vitally important, it's becoming smaller. It's become a smaller percentage of organizations as they can lean on technology and other capabilities to provide that more efficiently. And so that's the the shift that we're seeing. And for me, th- that means knowing what you're good at, right? Knowing what your strengths are, where your, your capabilities lie, and building a, a team, maybe it's a, n- a network around you, of pulling in those resources to help you when needed to accomplish things that you're not good at, because none of us are good at everything. And, and nor do I think we should be. I, I think we should actually spend time emphasizing our strengths and not being so concerned about our weaknesses. But, but it takes a group of people to, to get objectives accomplished. It does. A- absolutely. Okay, so change makers. Let's let's put this in the context squarely of of product managers now. 
it seems like there's two aspects of this that we could talk about, and we'll see where we end up with the time we have. As a product manager, we probably are encountering more resources like this to get work done. But also, we need to think about how this kind of shifting paradigm that, that might become much more significant than we're seeing right now and talking about right now impacts our work as a product manager. So let's spend a little bit of time talking about product managers being these change makers. Sure. How, how can we prepare for this? It's, it's a great analogy, and it just, it just dawned on me as we were talking that we talk about the change makers being, we, we say like a CEO or an entrepreneur, but also an orchestrator. Mm. And that's where we're staring, and I, I steer people that I, I coach and mentor as well, to focus on how you pull together these resources to accomplish something and how you, it's, it's, that is where the value as we as humans is increasingly going to be as more AI and technology sort of take over routine tasks. So from a product manager perspective, it's what you do day in and day out, right? So, so part of being, part of managing that product, and I've been there and done that in, in prior lives as well, is you're defining, you're def- helping to define and shape the strategy, but you're also very laser focused in on the execution, both in terms of defining what that looks like at a, at a very specific level and then ensuring that it is executed and delivered properly. That's an orchestration role. So what I, what I do believe it means for product managers today is that as you're looking at staffing for your projects or, or bringing in experts either in the envisioning stage or in the implementation phase, is that you have, the good news is, you have more and more opportunity to pull in the right expert. Um, and we put an example in the book. Uh, there was a, a motorcycle company in the upper Midwest that needed to build a new interface for their mobile app that involves some 3D rendering, and they ended up hiring an expert, I think, out of Japan to do the coding. That could not have happened 50 years ago. And, and so you have, the good news is you have all of this additional wealth of talent that you can tap into. The challenging part is, Everybody else has the same thing. So you're competing for resources, particularly in the technology space. You're competing for resources that are everybody else is, and it's becoming harder and harder. So freelance can unlock that for you where you have more of a, of a net of opera, a web of opportunity to reach into and, and find the right talent. You will face structural impediments. We, we talk about that in the book. If your HR systems and your sort of corporate policies mean that to onboard anyone, it takes three weeks to go through paperwork and security background checks and all of that kind of stuff. If it takes that long to onboard a person, you're sunk because you may not, you may only do that person for a week. So having to work with your, your, your corporate partners to understand how they can expedite those things. The last thing I'd say, so from a product management perspective, and I have a technology lens, it's, it's my background. So I know not all product managers are tech, but we talk a lot about AI. It, it is becoming increasingly cheaper. And Chad, you mentioned this. It's becoming increasingly cheaper, quicker and easier to implement. And to give you an example, the, the product that I built that Chad was, was talking about, it cost us probably all in about a year and a half to two years and maybe a couple million in investment. And we did that on the cheap. Um, it probably could have been 10 to 20 million in investment easily. I built that same product in a different industry a few years ago. Similar, very similar product, same kind of technology. Built it in a month and a half with one person for about $50,000. Like you just, that's, that is the, uh, the acceleration. It's, it's amazing. Just shocking to think of that. And it's only been 10 years later. Right. Uh, so when you're thinking about integrating this kind of technology, know that it's going to become increasingly easy. It's already being built into a lot of the software that we're using as companies. So it, it almost becomes just table stakes. 
And that is going to change how we work. It's going to change how your products are successful and change user behavior. So that's, that's the other thing to watch out for. So lots to keep in mind. Yeah, a, a lot of the resources that we use are evolving, right? So product managers, we, we've seen them in the last arguably year or two, data scientists becoming uh, much more important. Mm-hmm. And so organizations have embraced uh, using data, analyzing data, helping to guide decisions with that. Product managers have increasing pressures on them to defend their decisions with data. But mm-hmm. but we've gone now from seeing that being an aspect of the organization to, in some place, cases, data scientists being part of the product team. So, yes. so, the role has changed. And so, you know, having the AI expert <laughs> as part of the team, the resources will continue to evolve. And in that orchestra, orchestrator, the, the who is the person that conducts the orchestra? The, the conductor, The conductor, right? okay, just called the conductor. Yes. I, I was drawing a blank there about where I was going with that <laughs> term. But as product managers, we are that conductor of the resources. And it seems like part of this paradigm shift will be you know, the, the person that might win might simply be the person that has the strong professional network of resources to count on when things are needed. That's that's a great point. And and you mentioned analytics. We we talk a lot about, especially, and, and this was my section. I, I took the AI section of the book because it's it's my passion. Mm-hmm. It's where I've spent most of my career. And you know, you do not need to be a like if people say, so should I go get a computer science degree? And I said, unless you really want to do that full time, no, you you don't need to be a developer in order to leverage technology. And and you hit on it. One of the key skills I say is you need analytical skills. And it's not, you don't have to go get a degree in statistics, but understand causality, impacts, trends, predictions, things like that. Understand how those work helps you in your role because so much of what we do is data-driven these days. And so as that orchestrator, as that conductor, you need to you need to understand how that data works. You don't have to be a data scientist. And I would argue that, sorry to my data scientist friends, but I think that's a, a waypoint on a journey that doesn't end with a data scientist. I see... Where we end up is that these tools are pervasive and easy enough to use that citizen data scientists, those of us that are analytics savvy, but not data scientists, can run with these tools and make the decisions we need without mm-hmm. without an intermediary. Product managers are already very good conductors, and now we're just reframing in a, in a sense, you know, expanding that a bit. One more, a few more tools in your tool belt. That's yeah. right. Good. Matt, thank you for all the information about this human cloud and shifting paradigms of work. The, the book has received great praise so when you look at the people who have endorsed it and reviewed it. You have wonderful people characterizing it as this, this is a, a, a book that needs to be read to understand what is coming to the future of work. So appreciate your efforts in making this happen. Thank you. As listeners know, we like innovation quotes around here. What do you have for us? And tell us a little bit about what that means to you. Sure. So I, I heard this one maybe about a year ago, and it, it resonates with me now that I'm a bit older and longer in the tooth is that it was from Mark Zuckerberg. So he originally used to say when he was early in the Facebook days was move fast and break things. And that was, you know, that was the ethos he wanted. He said, don't feel fair. Uh, don't fear failure. Mm-hmm. Right. Charge in, break stuff if you have to. Then it became a proper company. And, and so he now says, move fast on stable infrastructure. And I think that is such a great, great quote because it, it highlights that except in the most early stages of startups, innovation has to be built on something. And if it is on wobbly infrastructure, and it's, he's not talking about servers and stuff. If, if the company is wobbly, if processes are wobbly, if the system, the technology is wobbly, then you can't innovate and succeed in bringing something out to market. 
because that that's going to be a structural impediment that just keeps dragging you back. So so I love it because product, product to you, product managers, like work with your your teams that are building that infrastructure, whatever that means to you, and and partner with them to ensure it's solid so that you can you know stand on the shoulders of giants, as they say. Yep. Thank you for sharing the quote with us. For listeners that want to find out about Human Cloud and other work that you do, Matt, how can they do that? Sure. So uh, humancloudbook.com. Uh, humancloudbook.com. It's also out on Amazon and, and other retailers. And then for me personally, I'm on LinkedIn, but also matthewcoatney.com. Matthewcoatney.com. I'll make sure the links to those resources are in the show notes. Matt, thank you so much for bringing the insights to us. It's great to connect again after working together for a few years. Absolutely. And uh, this is a good contribution for product managers, uh, organizational leaders, and employees to kind of know how things are changing in the future for them. Well, and, th- and thank you for doing this podcast because it's wonderful and is such a needed needed topic in this space. I really appreciate it. Thanks again for listening. This is where product leaders and managers become product masters, getting practical knowledge, influence, and confidence so you'll create products customers love. Find the written notes of the discussion with Matt at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 330. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit theeverydayinnovator.com.